A North Korean who held a senior position in the government has defected, and today he has a message for Americans. My request is that people in the U.S. not forget the people in North Korea, but remember them, pray for them, and support them. It's Thursday, June 8th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the director of the Office of Management and Budget has emerged as a key figure in the recent debt crisis. Coming up, she talks about her role as lead negotiator. This week, a Miami bookstore has been handing out free copies of Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hill We Climb. Gorman read the poem at President Biden's inauguration. An elementary school in Miami voted to limit elementary students' access to the poem after one parent claimed it included messages of hate. Also ahead, we check in at the French Open. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Supreme Court has ruled in favor of minority voters in Alabama. The landmark decision upholds key provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, as Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports. At issue was a congressional redistricting plan drawn by Alabama's Republican-dominated legislature that created six out of seven majority white districts. In its ruling, SCOTUS said under federal civil rights law, the state was required to create another district with a majority of black voters. Kyle Gassett reporting. The smoky haze generated by hundreds of wildfires in Canada is causing delays again today at U.S. airports. NPR's Joel Rose reports flight delays are mounting at airports in the northeast and beyond. Hazy conditions and low visibility led to another day of headaches for many travelers heading in and out of airports from New York to Washington, D.C. While the Federal Aviation Administration warned that smoky conditions could extend further south to Charlotte, North Carolina. In a video posted on Twitter, the FAA's Sam Osby says the smoky haze makes it harder for pilots to see runways and taxiways. We slow things down and we allow aircraft to have more space to maneuver until they are able to safely see the airports. While smoky conditions from wildfires are unusual in the Northeast, Osby says many pilots have seen this before when flying into airports in the West. Joel Rose, NPR News. Meanwhile, the smoke has forced the cancellation of events today, including live horse racing at Belmont Park in New York. A group of seismologists in Europe say they detected an explosion around the time that a critical dam collapsed in Ukraine. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports the signal is the first piece of independence evidence to suggest the dam was destroyed in a blast. The signal was detected by seismic stations in Ukraine and Romania, according to NORSAR, a Norwegian group that monitors them. It occurred around 2.54 a.m. local time, consistent with when the dam is believed to have collapsed. Folker Oya is a seismologist with NORSAR. We see a pulse of energy which is focused, which is typical from an explosion. The signal was located to within just a few miles of the dam, and explosions are unusual in this part of the country, Oya says. Still, the seismic signal can't say what caused the blast. Both Russia and Ukraine accuse each other of blowing up the dam. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is calling for an international investigation into the incident. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. The number of people applying for first-time jobless claims rose last week to its highest level since October of 2021, though the labor market remains one of the strongest parts of the U.S. economy. The Labor Department says unemployment claims rose 28,000 to a seasonally adjusted 261,000. Wall Street higher just ahead of the close, the Dow up 168. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two child sexual abuse victims of former Boston police officer Patrick Rose are suing the Department of Children and Families in the city of Boston and others. The suit alleges they failed to try to stop Rose after he was accused of abuse. Rose was first accused of child rape in 1995, but he was allowed to return to the force and later became the president of the Patrolman's Union. Rose is currently serving a 10-year prison sentence for sexually abusing six children. There's been no comment from the plaintiffs. The MBTA's board of directors today approved a budget for the next fiscal year. The T's chief financial officer, Marianne O'Hara, says the $2.7 billion budget stands apart from those of recent years. The budget is different than prior years as the size and scope and scale of the investment, in particular for safety, are massive. O'Hara says more than half of new spending will go toward safety and training initiatives. Fiscal year 2024 begins the 1st of July. Massachusetts Congressman Catherine Clark is calling today's U.S. Supreme Court decision on voting districts in Alabama a major victory. The court ruled against a new racially gerrymandering district. Clark, who is the House Minority Whip, says Congress must fortify the Voting Rights Act to ensure equal access to the ballot box. And U.S. Senator Ed Markey took to the Senate floor today to talk about the dangerous wildfire smoke and warn of the growing climate crisis. Markey says the Canadian wildfires and those in the U.S. are being caused by a warming planet. When you superheat the planet and create searing heat over densely wooded forests, Fires are not a surprise. The air quality in our area has improved after being unhealthful over the past few days after winds pulled smoke down from Canada. It is still gray, lots of clouds around, and should have clouds overnight tonight, too. Temperatures about 52 for low. Then for tomorrow and for Saturday as well, clouds, showers, highs about 63 degrees. Tomorrow, 68 on Saturday. Then finally, sunshine on Sunday could warm to the upper 70s. It's 4.06. WBUR supporters include Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers, or at smartmouth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, a city in which praise does not frequently float across partisan lines. So it was notable when House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a Republican, had this to say about a top Biden administration official amid some of the most contentious debt ceiling negotiations in memory. Highly respect them, their knowledge. They've been Shalanda's worked on Apropos. Everybody in this place knows her, um, respects her greatly. Apropos meaning appropriations. And the Shalanda he's talking about, Shalanda Young, President Biden's budget director. Young brings more than a decade of experience on the House Appropriations Committee to her job, a job in which she served as a top White House negotiator to help pull the U.S. back from the brink of a historic default. Shalanda Young, it is so nice to see you in our studio. Welcome. Thanks, Mary Louise. Thanks for having me. I want to ask... At what point, at what moment in the debt ceiling talks, like how stuck and hopeless seeming were they when President Biden said, Shalanda, take the ball, please run? Look, we were stuck. um, And it was clear the speaker uh, wanted a different model to move the ball along. uh, And the president 
uh, offered up. I think that's an appropriate way to put it. <laughs> uh, his longtime time counselor, Steve Rochetti. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, when Steve speaks, uh, almost no one knows uh, President Biden better than Steve Rochetti. Uh, and off- also offered me up as a long-time House staffer. Uh, who knows a lot of the players uh, we were going to have to deal with and knows the issues. So y'all were tag teaming. And how did you divvy that up? Were you like a good cop, bad cop? Depended on the day, depended on the hour. Um, What needed to be discussed? Clearly, some of the the nitty gritty of budget numbers, uh, I took the lead. Uh, Steve delivered uh, hard truths in the room. Uh, especially uh, knowing where the president wanted to go. Uh, so it was a good combination along with uh, two of our other colleagues, uh, Louisa Terrell, who's also known the president a very long time, and Michael Linden, who works with me, uh, with the speaker's team. Yeah. And what was the breakthrough moment? I mean, describe that after weeks of talks that were right up against the edge of this cliff. I've done a lot of these, um, and I never see like a big moment you just want to see progress every day, even when you've taken a couple steps back. Can you get it back on track? How fast can you get it back on track? You have a time, a timeline. This one, when we uh, ran out of the ability to pay our, our debts. Because Janet Yellen was warning it's coming and it's coming really fast. And she warned uh, every day. So we all knew and we, we knew the, the time frame. So I don't know if there was one breakthrough moment, but as long as we kept meeting, as long as we kept talking, as long as one line of communication was open. Um, so I never had that it's not going to happen moment because failure wasn't an option. Yeah. So you got to a deal. And I want to step back and ask how you see the stakes. I mean, there were numbers in play. You were trying to get the math to line up and everybody on the same page in terms of the math. But bigger picture, Do these negotiations say? What do they say about the direction our country is or should be headed in? You know, what always strikes me, I've been in this town 22 years. Um, You know, debt ceiling, brinksmanship is a fairly newer construct uh, that I wish we did not have. Uh, It was something Congress did without much fanfare because it was just a part of their duty. Um, And you saw that change um, in 2011. And we are at the place we are. We can complain about it or we, we do what we just did, which is work out a deal uh, that the majority of members on the Democratic and Republican side agreed to. Uh, and I think the vote was validating to this model that there could be compromise. We're in divided government. That's what the American people expect. Right. When you say we are at the place we are. It makes me wonder, how do we avoid doing this all over again? Nobody wants to do this every two years, but is there a way you get off that track? I'm sure you don't. You're looking at me like, <laughs> please, can we not do this again every two years? I have a 19-month-old. I can't do math as quickly, even though I'm the budget director, but um, I can promise you, a kindergartner, it still wouldn't be uh, fun to, to do that again. Look, the the goal was not just to avoid default, which would have been the first ever in this country, risking 8 million jobs of Americans, many of them working class, middle class. You have to keep that in mind. Um, But it was also do this for an extended amount of time, not to put the country through this uh, for a long time. And we were able to accomplish that getting a deal till uh, 2025. Yeah. But again, my question, how do we not do this every two years? Look, it's congressional responsibility to do this. And we, um, we're we going to keep reminding them of this. Look, we were going to have to talk about budgets at some point. Republicans wanted to bring that conversation forward and have that. 
And I think we ended up in a, in a place you would expect in divided government, whether we have that conversation now or in three months. Yeah. We've been talking about numbers and math, and I will inject one, which is the national debt stands at $31 trillion and growing. Is there no point at which the government just needs to say no more? Put the brakes on spending? Let's remember something. Like, I, I reject this idea that when you talk about budgets, that you don't talk about revenue. What does the government bring in? Who are you bringing it in from? Are billionaires in this country paying what nurses and firefighters are paying as a percentage of their pay? Do we pay income when people go to work and kill themselves? Uh, are we taxing that the same as people who have wealth uh, in stocks? We are not. Uh, and the president has made very clear that while we had a, a limited conversation to talk about real deficit reduction, to really get the debt under control, we have to have a real conversation about revenues and the tax unfairness in this country. Yeah. But in the minute or so we have left, the revenues are clearly not keeping up. I mean, again, it's a $31 trillion deficit, not surplus. Yeah, this is why in the president's budget, we put forth several uh, tax proposals we kept bringing these up in conversations uh, with Republicans. And look, we had to avoid default, but we've not given up. We're coming back. Uh, we think corporations, the top 1%, are not paying the same percentage. Like there's some, uh, some studies saying that billionaires, hundreds of millionaires, pay 8% of their income uh, in taxes wow. compared to nurses who pay 20%. That's not fair. And it's not bringing up in enough revenues uh, to keep up with what we need to do in this country. Shalanda Young is the director of the Office of Management and Budget. We appreciate you stopping by. I wish you some some sleep and some quality time Thank with you that so toddler much. of yours. Thank you so much. 19 months, no sleep. <laughs> <laughs> we turn now to the octopus, which is known for its smarts. New research shows that these creatures can remake their brains in response to changes in their environment. NPR science reporter Ari Daniel brings us our weekly dose of wonder. The brain inside your head is fragile. It's encased in a skull, bathed in oxygen, and tuned to work at a relatively stable body temperature. We spend a ton of energy maintaining a constant temperature, and a lot of that is so that our nervous system can operate more efficiently. Too hot or too cold, and our brains would sputter and start to fail, says Josh Rosenthal, a neurobiologist at the Marine Biological Laboratory. Think hypothermia, or what happens when you spike a fever. You start becoming delirious. You're not thinking straight. And that's just several degrees off the norm. Now, consider the octopus. They're curious and clever. They can solve mazes and puzzles, use tools, and are masters of camouflage. They have incredibly complex, sophisticated behaviors, enormous brains. And those brains require just as much care as ours. But they're in squishy bodies, swimming in water that can swing by some 20 degrees. It's very hard to maintain a constant temperature in the water, and that presents challenges. So what's an octopus to do? They've got this trick up their sleeves that we don't know of any other animal that has in quite the same way. That trick is hidden inside their cells, says biologist Matthew Burke at St. Francis University. And it has to do with RNA, which is a very special molecule. It takes the genetic information in DNA and helps translate it into the proteins that make up our bodies. It doesn't tend to change all that much. RNA is just the messenger, but... If you can edit RNA, then that gives you flexibility. 
In the brains of most animals, only a few percent of the RNAs get edited, but inside the brains of octopuses and their relatives, it's more than 60%. That's a lot. And the researchers wondered if something in the animal's environment might be driving all this tweaking, specifically temperature. So Burke decided to test this out with some help from a kind of octopus. The California two-spot octopus, they look very much like your typical octopus. Although it does have two iridescent blue spots to try and scare a predator away. Their coastal habitat in Southern California and Northern Mexico seesaws between warm summers and cool winters. In the lab, Burke placed half his octopuses in cooler water and half in warmer water. After a few weeks, he collected RNA from their brains. We found that there were over 20,000 different locations on various different proteins that were edited. So the octopuses were re-sculpting their brains, presumably to keep them functioning properly in shifting temperatures, and they're capable of making these edits in less than a day. The findings are published in the journal Cell. Now, we still don't know how these changes might impact an octopus in its daily life, says Robin Crook, a neurobiologist at San Francisco State University who wasn't involved in the research. What would be nice to see in future is what types of behaviors are affected by these different types of changes. Their reaction speeds, their ability to camouflage. And despite octopuses living such different lives than you and I, Matthew Burke says their unique brains may prove useful to us one day. We're trying to figure out how to capture this ability to use it towards therapeutics. Like pain reduction or repairing harmful mutations that cause disease. Octopuses, he says, have a lot to teach us. They are fascinating and interesting, not just on the outside, where we can all see. But also on the inside. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a government defector from North Korea has hopes for improved relations between the U.S. and his birth country. And then in about five minutes, film critic Bob Mondello weighs in on the film Blue Jean that takes place in Margaret Thatcher's England. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. And Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. Wall Street was on the rise today. The Dow rose a half percent. S&P hit a new high for the year as it picked up about six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq grew by a full percent. Resident physicians at the state's largest hospital system have unionized. Mass General Brigham officials say the union says 75 percent of doctors in training, or more than 1,200 of them, have voted in favor of unionizing. They're seeking higher pay and other benefits. Hospital officials oppose the effort. They say they'll continue to provide a world-class medical education. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. 
want to give a huge thanks to everybody who helped us out during our June fundraiser. More than 700 people became monthly contributors this week. We are now, as you can tell, back to uninterrupted programming. If you did not get a chance to give and you would still like to, please go to WBUR.org. And thank you so much. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 419. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox, with season two of The Tower, starring Gemma Whalen. This and more police dramas, including Line of Duty and The Responder, starring Martin Freeman. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. How did a chatbot designed to help people with eating disorders end up offering advice on weight loss and dieting? Well, that is the question now that the National Eating Disorders Association has taken down this controversial chatbot just days after NPR reported on it. Michigan Radio's Kate Wells has been covering this and joins us now. Hey, Kate. Hey. Okay, so why was the National Eating Disorders Association trying to use a chatbot in the first place here? Yeah, the context is really important. The association is known as NIDA, and obviously it works to support patients with eating disorders. And for more than 20 years now, they have had this helpline that's been really popular. It's staffed by humans. Mm -hmm. But when COVID hit, the calls and messages to the helpline went way up. They got like Mm -hmm. 70,000 contacts just last year alone. They said the volume of these calls, the severity of these calls wasn't sustainable. And last month, they shut the helpline down. And that was very controversial in itself. But this chatbot, which is called Tessa, was one of the resources Nita was going to offer and invest in and really promote even after this helpline was gone. Okay, so what exactly went wrong with Tessa? Yeah, there's this a consultant in the eating disorder field. Her name is Sharon Maxwell. And she hears about this a couple weeks ago. She decides she wants to go try Tessa out. She asks the chatbot, hey, Tessa, how do you support people with eating disorders? And Tessa gives her a response that's like, oh, coping mechanisms, healthy eating habits. And Maxwell Mm -hmm. starts asking it more about these healthy eating habits. And soon Tessa is telling her things that sound a lot like what she heard when she was put on Weight Watchers at age 10. The recommendations that Tessa gave me was that I could lose one to two pounds per week, that I should eat no more than 2,000 calories in a day, that I should have a calorie deficit of 500 to 1,000 calories per day all of which might sound benign to the general listener. However, to an individual with an eating disorder, the focus of weight loss really fuels the eating disorder. Exactly. Okay, so Kate, this obviously was not what they intended for the chatbot to do. So, So what was the response from Nita? Well, so Maxwell posts about this on Instagram, and she provides screenshots of the conversations with Tessa to Nita. And she says within hours of that, the chatbot was taken down. Nita told us that it's grateful to Maxwell and others for bringing this to their attention. And they're blaming the company that was operating the chatbot. 
Huh. And what did the company do to the chatbot specifically? So what you need to know about Tessa is that it was originally created by eating disorder experts. It was not like ChatGPT, which we hear a lot about. It couldn't just create new content on its own. Mm-hmm. One of those creators is Ellen Fitzsimmons-Craft. She's a professor at Washington University's Medical School in St. Louis. And she says they intentionally kept Tessa pretty narrow because they knew that this was going to be a high-risk situation. By design, it it couldn't go off the rails. We were very cognizant of the fact that AI isn't ready for this population. And so all of the responses were pre-programmed. But then at some point in the last year, the company that's operating Tessa, it's called CAS, added generative artificial intelligence, meaning it gave Tessa the ability to learn from new data and generate new responses. And the CEO of CAS told me that this is part of a systems upgrade, and he says that this change was part of its contract with NIDA. We should note that both the company and NIDA have apologized. Okay. And we are seeing, you know, more and more of these chatbots in the mental health area. Like, there are apps you can download, companies that are promoting AI therapy. Is the takeaway here that this is just a bad idea? Well, you can see why AI is so tempting, right? I mean, it's convenient, it's cheaper than hiring more and more humans, but what we are seeing repeatedly is that chatbots make mistakes. And in high-risk situations, that can be harmful. That is Kate Wells with Michigan Radio. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. A teacher faces difficult choices in Blue Jean, the first feature from filmmaker Georgia Oakley. The story takes place in 1980s England, but our critic Bob Mondello says it could easily be set in many American communities today. 1988, Jean is a secondary school gym teacher in the northeast of Britain who wants her students to know more than just how to spike a volleyball. Can anyone tell me what fight or flight means? I'm not just talking about netball. Instincts. I'm talking about instincts. The body responds far quicker than the brain. Faced with sudden danger, the body begins to respond before the brain has even thought about it. Jean has been mostly on the flight side of this equation outside of school, keeping her private life private, listening warily to news reports on her Walkman as she jogs daily past a billboard headlined, Are Your Children Being Taught Traditional Moral Values? We care about the perpetuation of the heterosexual normal family as the basis of civilized society here and in other countries. Maggie Thatcher's been Britain's prime minister for almost a decade at this point, and her conservative government is in the process of passing legislation stigmatizing LGBTQ people. Jean, while in a long-term relationship, is essentially closeted, cautious even with family. Who's that? Sammy, this is me friend, Viv. Viv, this is Sammy. Oh, yeah. Watch telly for five minutes, okay? Viv registered the equivocation there. Friend, is it? He's five. And? Don't. Don't what? Well, don't tell me how to be in my own family. Okay. Jean's already precarious position grows more complicated when she spots a student in the gay pub she frequents, a girl who's comfortable enough with her sexuality to choose not flight, but fight when bullied at school. 
Blue Jean feels lived in and immediate enough that it's startling to discover that writer-director Georgia Oakley was just born in 1988 when Britain's notorious Section 28 was enshrining homophobia in law, or maybe not startling given the recent push for anti-gay and anti-trans laws in Britain, the U.S., and elsewhere. Oakley uses 1980s news broadcasts. Positive images of homosexuality prompted a violent response. To demonstrate how little the prejudice and the legislation it prompts has changed. The central provisions are that homosexuality must not be promoted in state schools and it outlaws teaching the acceptability of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship. Oakley's portrait of the impact of the since repealed Section 28 is persuasive enough to make Blue Jean feel like a documentary at times. The world in which Rosie McEwen's Jean feels so embattled is recreated in chilly pastels on sometimes grainy film stock, relieved with warmer reds and pinks only when she's at her girlfriend's apartment or in the boisterous gay pub spaces where the anxiety she mostly keeps hidden can be expressed. If anyone found out, I'd never work again. What about her? Who? That girl, come on, how old is she? What, 16? What kind of example are you setting for her? That's not fair. None of this is fair. Well, that the characters still like manage to find hope and solidarity in community is what gives Blue Jean its emotional punch, a reminder that even in trying times, journeys to self-acceptance are possible. I'm Bob Mandela. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. We've got a few spots of blue sky out there. Keep the umbrella around for a while longer, though, because we should have scattered showers this evening and overnight tonight. About 52 for a low tonight. Tomorrow we should get rained on again and again. Maybe some thunderstorms, temperatures in the mid-60s. And then for the weekend, Saturday, clouds, sporadic showers, a little bit milder, coming close to 70 degrees. Sunday should reach well into the 70s, a beautiful day ahead with highs about 77, sunshine in full force on Sunday. 64 degrees now in Boston at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting As We Rise, Photography from the Black Atlantic, opens June 17th. More at PEM.org. French pop singer Christina the Queens wants you to know there are no actual queens on stage with him when he performs. It's just him, Chris. It's a very tiny French man with lots, lots of crazy ideas. <laughs> Moving forward to you with his masks falling off slowly. The creative force behind Christine and the Queens discusses his new album, Paranoia, Angels, True Love, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Tens of millions of people on the East Coast and Midwest are being urged to stay indoors as hazy smoke from wildfires burning in Canada continues to raise concerns about the health effects of prolonged exposure to such bad air, which has also disrupted air travel in the U.S. 
NPR's Kristen Wright tells us the Federal Aviation Administration halted some flights today bound for the East Coast. Wildfire smoke is reducing visibility in the nation's airspace. The FAA says the conditions interfere with navigation systems, and as a result, air traffic controllers and pilots are taking additional safety measures. Poor visibility at times has disrupted flights headed for New York, Philadelphia, and Newark, New Jersey, as smoke from Canada is blanketing most of the east and parts of the Midwest. NPR's Kristen Wright, forecasters say a weather system that's driving the smoky air from Canada into the U.S., will likely hang around for at least a few more days. The federal government is warning about a widespread cyber attack for anyone using a popular file transfer software called MoveIt. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin tells us a group of hackers breached the software company and is now extorting the company's clients. Cyber criminals hoping to make a lot of money are always looking for ways to target more victims at once. That's why breaching a popular software program used by a large number of major companies is so attractive. According to a notice from the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the ransomware gang that goes by the name CLOP exploited a vulnerability in a piece of software called MoveIt, which helps users encrypt and transfer files. The hackers are thought to be based in Russia. They took advantage of the Memorial Day holiday to launch the attack against targets including major payroll provider Zealous, British Airways, and the BBC. Jenna McLaughlin, NPR News. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. An outpatient addiction treatment program Emerson Hospital opened in 2019 had shut down as of this week. Emerson says it's shifting priorities amid weak demand. But as WBR's Lynn Jolliker reports, the doctor who ran the program disagrees with the decision. Dr. Stephanie Strategus prescribed medications to treat opioid and alcohol addictions at a clinic at Emerson Hospital in Concord and at a medical office in Groton. Emerson Health says the program had a limited number of patients. Strategus says she had hundreds, and many will now have to drive further for their treatment. The more barriers you put in place, the less people are going to engage in this treatment. You have to make it really, really easy to get care in order for the care to be effective. Emerson says it's focusing on inpatient and emergency behavioral health programs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Groups that help immigrants in Chelsea say they're seeing more people arriving from Florida. The new arrivals say they're fleeing Florida's anti-immigration policies under the governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. WBUR's Kyrie Thompson has more. Gladys Vega, the executive director of the social organization La Colaborativa, says 43 immigrants arrived in Chelsea from Miami last week and ties their flight directly to DeSantis's crackdowns on immigration. We're getting a wave of new immigrants from Florida driving here, and they are afraid of new policies that in Florida are being in effect as we speak. Vega tells WBUR's Radio Boston these arrivals add to the influx of new immigrants coming from the southern border. She also says the increasing demand for assistance is straining Chelsea's efforts to recover economically after the pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Kyrie Thompson. The state of New Hampshire is asking anyone going near its ponds and lakes to stay away from loon nests now through the most of July. It's nesting season for the loons. New Hampshire's Loon Preservation Committee says loons often build their nests right along the water's edge. State biologists say half the loon nests in New Hampshire fail each year because they're disturbed by humans. It's 434.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Got some bright spots out there, but mainly cloudy skies, damp through the evening and overnight tonight, about 52 or for the low overnight. Then for tomorrow and for Saturday, at least Mother Nature's consistent. Clouds, showers, highs about 63 tomorrow, then inching up to 68 on Saturday. Finally, a change in the weather for the second half of the weekend. Sunday should be gorgeous, sunny, dry, and warm. Temperatures in the upper 70s. 64 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Ask any just-arrived tourist in this town top 10 things they want to see, and the White House probably makes the list. Kim hyun who just landed for his first-ever visit to the U.S., is no different. Yeah, more... When I'd been, you know, dreaming of visiting U.S., there were some places I would... I really wanted to visit the United States, in D.C. I wanted to visit White House. But Mr. Kim, who you hear there and throughout this next conversation speaking through an interpreter, he's no ordinary tourist. He spent 17 years working for North Korean intelligence at the Ministry of State Security. He defected in 2014, lives today in South Korea. He now works at a government-funded think tank in Seoul, and it is the South Korean embassy here in Washington that has organized his visit. Kim hyun told me that while he's here, he hopes to strike up conversations with ordinary Americans on the street. And my request is that people in the U.S. will not forget the people in North Korea, but continue to remember them, pray for them, and support them. Yesterday on the program, you heard Kim's views on life inside North Korea, which he continues to monitor from his post in Seoul. Today, his views on relations with the U.S. Your country and my country have had a very difficult relationship for many years, do you see any path toward new diplomacy, new engagement between Washington and Pyongyang? I do have hopes that there could be new changes in the diplomacy between North Korea and United States. What gives you this hope? Ah, the source of my hope is that even as we speak, the current both South Korean government and the U.S. government has, despite the situations going on, has been consistent in their stance that dialogue and diplomacy, the door to diplomacy and negotiations with North Korea without condition is always open. And that I find hope that even though obviously right now, the North Korean state has not been responsive to those calls for diplomacy. If South Korea and U.S. continues to open the door and make diplomatic outreach to North Korea, eventually there's going to be a shift in North Korea's response from passivity to more engagement. And that is the source of my hope.
물론 가능성은 굉장히 낮습니다. I recognize that there is viewed the possibility of successful negotiations and diplomacy between North Korea and U.S. or North Korea and South Korea is low as of now. And yet, my hope is that with persistent efforts to continue works for diplomatic negotiations with North Korea, those persistency and patience would eventually bear fruits and would lead to breakthrough in the diplomatic gridlock. 저는 한 가지 얘기하고 싶은 거는 대화를 이제 One thing more concrete I want to add is, especially right now when there is a diplomatic stalemate at the official channels, in order to create a breakthrough, what we need is a two-track diplomacy in which if the official diplomatic channels is missing gridlock, we need to engage in widening opportunities for informal, informal, indirect, private channels of diplomacy. That should be happen in parallel with the official diplomatic channels. Is that part of what you're doing? Unfortunately, I cannot be involved in informal channels because North Korea view me as a traitor. So they would not want to talk with me ever. What about nuclear weapons? The U.S. has tried and tried to get North Korea to walk away from its nuclear weapons program. Do you see any scenario in which they would? My view is that it is very difficult for North Korea to agree and implement denuclearization. And the reason is because North Korea's current regime views denuclearization, so giving up the nuclear arsenal, as causing severe risk to their own regime stability and governance over the country. You just told me North Korea sees you as a traitor. Are you a traitor to North Korea? I wonder... When you use that word, what that means to you? that the question opens up a wound in my heart? From North Korea's regime's perspective, yes, I am a traitor, yes. And from the perspective of the, my relatives in North Korea, I am a bad person. But yes, for myself, I do not use those labels. I do not think those labels apply to me. Do you believe you'll ever go home? That's my hope. I always have the hope of one day returning back to my hometown, my home city. But realistically, I know... It's very difficult. And perhaps to quicken the day of my return, my ability to return back to North Korea, more so I need, we need support and attention from the United States. For me to one day return back to North Korea, I can only hope to rely on consistent commitment from South Korean government and from United States government. Is there any risk to you or to your family from talking to me, from giving open interviews? 그렇죠. 
음, 맞습니다. Yes, it can be. 그래서 제가 사실 이 인터뷰가 가장 부담스러웠었습니다. And to be honest, before coming, yes, I did think about the risk to myself, my own safety and my family's safety before I decided to accept the interview. Yes, I did think about this. And I'll note we have agreed not to share certain details of Kim's story in order to protect his safety. Before Mr. Kim left our studios, I did have one last question. You said you wanted to see the White House. Will you get to see the White House? For this week, visiting inside White House unlikely, so my more realistic little smaller hope is at least be able to walk in front of the White House where other tourists are and take a self-photo. But for the future trips, I do hope to one day visit inside the White House. This is a very American thing to do, to take a selfie outside the White House. So you will be in good company. Oh, <laughs> You're giving me a thumbs up. There we go. Mr. Kim, thank you. Thank you. Kim Hyun-woo defected from North Korea in 2014 after serving 17 years in North Korean intelligence. This was his first interview. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Florida, the complaint of just one parent can get a book moved off a school library shelf. That's what people in Miami-Dade County learned recently after a mom claimed that the poem read at President Biden's inauguration was, quote, indoctrination. The poet of that poem is Amanda Gorman, and this week a local bookstore gave away copies of her book for free as a way to push back against censorship in Florida schools. From member station WLRN, Kate Payne reports. Hundreds of people stream into a church in the city of Coral Gables to grab brown paper bags filled with books. Inside are The Hill We Climb by Amanda Gorman, The ABCs of Black History by Rio Cortez, and Love to Langston by Tony Medina. A complaint by one Miami-Dade mother got these books moved out of the elementary school section of her kids' library. I just think it's an atrocity to ban any book. Sara Cordero came to the book giveaway with her young daughter, Ana Lila. The five-year-old grabbed the ABCs of Black History and wouldn't put it down. I was telling her when we were coming here what was going on and that they were banning, they were wanting to ban books, and she just didn't get it. She's like, why would somebody ban a book? Later, local authors read from the books to a standing-room-only crowd while kids followed along in their new copies. Marvin Dunn is a historian of Black Miami. A is for anthem, a banner of song that wraps us in hope, lets us know we belong. B is for beautiful. Under state law, any parent or county resident can challenge a book. Some readers and educators are looking for ways to push back. At times, this event, hosted by the local store Books and Books, felt like a political rally. The books at this giveaway were paid for by a local donor and Amanda Gorman. She spoke with CBS News about the controversy. Decisions about what their uh, child can read, I'm fine with 
some parents not liking my poetry, that's completely in your right. But when we get to the situation where that one person dislike of my work leads to everyone else not having access to that, that is a huge issue. Gorman wasn't at the book giveaway, but other prominent local authors were, like Haitian-American writer Edwige Dantica. Like many people in this community, Dantica came to South Florida after fleeing government oppression in her home country. People who are tyrannical, who are despots, they know as well as we know the power of literature, the power of it to change, the power of it to inspire. And I think that's one of the things that's being squashed here. So we have to ask ourselves if these things are being slowly taken away from children, what is next? That's why it's so important, she said, to celebrate these books and to share them. For NPR News, I'm Kate Payne in Coral Gables, Florida. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. Oceanstatejoblot.com. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, a surprise decision from the U.S. Supreme Court on how legislative districts are drawn. And coming up next, checking in on the French Open. A huge thanks to everybody who helped us out during our June fundraiser. The drive ended just a couple of hours ago. More than 700 people became monthly contributors. We're back to uninterrupted programming now, but if you did not get a chance to give and would like to, just go to WBUR.org. Thank you. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Native Plant Trust's Garden in the Woods in Framingham, offering pollinator-friendly plants for sustainable gardens grown from seeds without pesticides, NativePlantTrust.org. French pop singer Christina the Queens wants you to know there are no actual queens on stage with him when he performs. It's just him, Chris. It's a very tiny French man with lots, lots of crazy ideas. <laughs> Moving forward to you with his masks falling off slowly. The creative force behind Christina the Queens discusses his new album, Paranoia, Angels, True Love, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. For decades, tennis fans have been used to seeing a top-ranked Spaniard own the clay courts of the French Open. But this year, with Rafael Nadal out, 
It's 20-year-old Carlos Alcarez charging through to a semifinal match, hoping to win his second major. His opponent is none other than one of the top three most dominant players in recent years, Novak Djokovic. Djokovic is hoping to turn tomorrow's game into a win so he can play for a record-breaking 23rd Grand Slam championship. Joining us now is John Wertheim, Sports Illustrated writer and Tennis Channel analyst. He joins us from the tournament in Paris. Welcome back. Thank you. How are you? All right. So, of course, fans are seeing this big game tomorrow as kind of like a generational shift, right? Like if this 20-year-old can beat the 36-year-old and keep him from moving on to the finals. And let's be clear, this isn't just hopeful thinking. I mean, Alcaraz did beat Djokovic the one time the two of them met, right? He did, and that was recently. And Alcaraz is not only the, the top seed and the number one ranked player, but Alcaraz is the odds maker's favorite, which, which sounds insane when you're talking about a guy in Djokovic who not only has won 22 majors, but also won the most recent major. He's won this tournament twice, and the guy who won it 14 times and foiled him many times is not in the draw. So, yeah, the, the recency effect is alive and well. But as of now, as we speak, Alcaraz, ironically enough, is the favorite. Okay, so there's no doubt that tomorrow's game is the game of the tournament, on the men's side at least, yeah? Tennis being into irony, wouldn't you know it, the other semifinals might well go on to win. But no, I mean, I think everyone has sort of circled this as the de facto final, and both of the players did their part, winning the required five matches, but also doing so in sometimes just dazzling fashion. And they've won the last two majors, Alcaraz winning the U.S. Open and Djokovic winning in Australia earlier this year. I mean, this really is sort of the match to watch. And as you say, there really is history at stake. This really does feel like a hinge point pivot moment for tennis. Mm. Well, okay. when it comes to Alcaraz and Djokovic, what would you say are the strengths and the weaknesses that you see in each man's game as they're about to face each other? The weaknesses are hard to come by. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, Alcaraz is this 20-year-old kid. He's this muscular athlete. He just absolutely slugs the ball. And he has the virtue and the good fortune of, of being 20 years old. And Djokovic is the sort of classic youth versus experience. And Djokovic has been here many times. And he's, I, I describe him to non-tennis fans as sort of the, the Zava character of, of Ted Lasso. He's sort of this, this speaker, this, this mythical player. And his mental strength, which is not always as obvious to the eye as slugging 100-mile-an-hour shots, but Djokovic's mental strength is just like nothing I've seen, not, not just in tennis. I mean, I, I'd put him in the elite athletes in history as far as, as meeting the moment and being a clutch player and sort of bringing his best when the situation requires it. Well, OK, you're in Paris right now, John. Like, is the whole place just a buzz with tomorrow's game coming up? Yeah, there are no guarantees when you have 128 players and all those permutations. But when the draw was made more than two weeks ago, Everybody sort of took out their highlighters, and this was the match to watch. And then 14 days later, uh, here it is. So, yeah, everyone's focused on this match. That was John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated and the Tennis Channel joining us from the tournament in Paris. Thank you so much. Thanks, Elsa. Federal pandemic aid for the nation's child care industry is going to run out in September. That funding cliff is forcing several states, including California, to make tough decisions about how to subsidize its child care system. Meanwhile, underpaid providers are caught in the middle, as Daisy Wynn of member station KQED explains. Annette Nicholson opens her child care business based out of her home in Stockton, California, as early as 6 a.m. Nicholson lives on the north edge of town, where there are few child care options for families. 
Stockton is where these working-class parents can afford to live, but they need to drop their kids off with her early so they can commute long distances to the Bay Area. Throughout the day, Nicholson will read to 10 children, play with them and set them down for naps, and answer questions like she's doing here with a five-year-old boy named Tyree. I'm still getting big like my dad. One day you'll be a man, but you got a long time, not at five. You got to get 10 and then 15 and then 20. I'll be 20? One day. Nicholson works as long as 10 to 12 hours per day, but she barely gets by. That's because running a licensed childcare business costs far more than what parents can afford to pay her. We provide all the meals, the location, toys, the assistant, the education piece, the tools to go with that. She knows she can't charge parents more to cover all those expenses, so she essentially takes a pay cut. She figures she loses about $25,000 every year. At 62 years old, she doesn't have enough savings to retire. That's because she says she's been underpaid for years. People still kind of see us as, I'll say babysitters, and not look at that we are actually the ones that are developing our next generation. Childcare is a labor-intensive essential service, yet people in this industry nationwide are some of the lowest-paid workers. Nearly all are women of color like Nicholson, and many are also immigrants. Recent data from a UC Berkeley survey found home-based childcare providers in California earn as little as $16,000 a year, even though almost a third of them have a bachelor's degree and more than a decade's worth of experience. Anna Powell is a researcher at Berkeley's Center for the Study of Childcare Employment. The data has shown us that high quality early education is absolutely beneficial to children. It's beneficial to parents, right? These are long-term investments that are good for all of us. But let's also remember that the people we're investing in are truly high quality professionals themselves. Powell says the state needs to streamline the way it sets reimbursement rates for child care providers so that they're based on what it actually costs to provide care instead of what parents can afford. This year, Democrats in the California legislature want to do just that by raising the payback rate by 25 percent or about a billion dollars. Eloise Gomez-Reyes, the majority leader in the state assembly, is leading the effort. They're taking care of the most precious people in our lives, and yet we are not paying them enough to keep their doors open. While a billion might sound like a lot, Reyes says the increase will help make up for inflation since the current rates are stuck at 2016 levels. Reform and better pay won't happen overnight. But Nicholson says she hopes to see change before she retires. You know, you got to love kids. Because kids can wear you down, and you have to even love them even more to know that you're not going to get what you deserve. It's a, it's a lot of love you, <laughs> you have to give to stay in this industry. Nicholson hangs on, knowing that without her, parents can't go to work. For NPR News, I'm Daisy Wynn in Stockton, California. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, 
committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. A few cameos by sun, the sun today, overnight tonight, though we should have a lot of clouds around, temperatures about 50 degrees. And for tomorrow, the end of the work week, more clouds, more showers, maybe some afternoon thunderstorms should top out in the mid-60s. For Saturday, one more day of gray and showers, then sunshine finally on Sunday. It's 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open, WorcesterArt.org. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court stepped back from the brink of totally gutting the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act. It reaffirmed the precedent on how legislative districts must be drawn. This preserves the status quo. The alternative would have meant turning back a lot of the progress that had been made in terms of race. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Emerson Hospital in Concord has shut down its addiction treatment medication program. The doctor who ran it says the closing will make it harder for many people to get addiction care. The more barriers you put in place, the less people are going to engage in this treatment. You have to make it really, really easy to get care in order for the care to be effective. Also, as plumes of smoke dot the sky in the east, we get some advice from somebody in San Francisco who's been living under smoky skies for two decades. And the noise problem with pickleball coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Officials in Russian-occupied Ukraine confirm at least 14 people are dead, dozens injured in the wake of flooding that followed the destruction of a key regional dam in southern Ukraine. Moscow, NPR's Charles Baines has more. The Russian-installed mayor of the town closest to the Kohovka Dam said several of those who have died were tending cattle when they were swept up in the floodwaters. Russian authorities say they've evacuated over 4,200 people on the Russian-controlled side of the Dnipro River, but estimate some 14,000 homes are now fully inundated. The independent Russian media reports stalled rescue efforts as Russian emergency services have been overwhelmed by calls for assistance, including by residents on rooftops awaiting rescue. Ukrainian and Russian Russian officials continue to trade blame over who was responsible for destruction of the dam and the resulting ecological and humanitarian catastrophe. Similarly, each accuses the other of shelling civilian areas amid the rescue effort. Charles Maines, NPR News, 
Moscow. The nation's highest court with some notable conservative defections has sided with black voters in Alabama in a case focusing on a congressional redistricting. According to five to four ruling with Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh joining the court's liberals, affirming a lower court decision that found the Republican-led effort to weaken a landmark voting rights law likely amounted to a violation of the Voting Rights Act. The redrawn map had one majority black district out of seven congressional districts in a state where more than one in four residents are black. Wildfire smoke from Canada is creating unhealthy air quality across much of the eastern U.S. again today. Sophia Smith of member station WHYY reports that in Philadelphia, some people have no choice but to be outside. A block away from the Liberty Bell in Center City, Philadelphia, Lee Tilly sits at a stand selling tickets for bus tours. Local health officials have urged people to stay indoors, but because of his job, Tilly can't do that. It's definitely weighing in on, on my breathing a bit. But I just stay, um, just stay calm. I got to work. At home in Northeast Philly, Tilly's family is keeping the windows shut and running the air conditioner. His daughter has asthma and has been coughing, so her mom kept her home from school. Health officials advise that if you need to be outside in smoky conditions, wear a high-quality mask and avoid strenuous activity. For NPR News, I'm Sophia Schmidt in Philadelphia. The number of people filing first-time jobless claims rose last week to its highest level since the fall of 2021. Labor Department reporting today applications for unemployment benefits considered a proxy for overall layoffs in the labor market were up by 28,000 from the previous week. It's official at least by Wall Street metrics. A new bull market has technically begun with the Standard & Poor's 500 moving up 20% from a low set last October. Closed up 26 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Two victims of a former Boston police officer who was convicted of child sex abuse have filed a lawsuit against the institutions they say failed to investigate and stop the abuse nearly three decades ago. Among those named in the suit are the city of Boston, a former police commissioner, and a former head of the patrolman's union. Here's WBUR's Ali Jarmanning. Patrick Rose was first accused of sexually abusing a 12-year-old boy in 1995. The criminal charges were dropped, but Boston Police Internal Affairs found he was likely guilty. Rose was let back on the job, became head of the Patrolman's Union, and continued to abuse children for 20 more years. The victim's attorney, Janine Cotillo, says an entire system failed to do the right thing. The people who covered it up, the people that didn't protect them, the people whose duty it was to protect them, didn't help them. Those people should be held accountable. Rose is currently serving at least 10 years in prison for sexually abusing six children. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Former Police Commissioner Paul Evans and a Boston City spokesperson declined to comment. The Patrolman's Union, Department of Children and Families, and others named in the suit have not responded to a request for comment. An 18-year-old Wakefield man is being held on charges of trying to support a foreign terrorist group. Matteo Ventura did not enter a plea when he appeared in Worcester Federal Court today. Federal prosecutors say he attempted to send money to ISIS through gift cards. Mateo's father, Paul Ventura, says his son is not a terrorist and is not doing anything nefarious when he goes on the web. He's a history buff, and he likes to learn. He explains to me, he tells me, every time something goes on, and there's the Taliban, and there's another one, and these two fight against each other. It's like a learning thing for him. 
Ventura says his son denies buying gift cards to be sold on the dark web. On Beacon Hill, the effort to finalize a plan to cut taxes took a significant step forward today. The state Senate unveiled its $590 million tax relief proposal. It includes an increase in the deduction for people who pay rent and a boost to the earned income tax credit. The Senate is expected to debate the bill next week. 63 degrees now in the Boston area. We may not have heavy showers over the next couple of days, but we should have a lot of them. Some rain overnight tonight, down around 52. Tomorrow, about 63 for a high. Clouds persist, and so do the showers. Saturday, pretty much the same. Clouds and showers, thunderstorms as well. Could warm to nearly 70 Saturday. Then sunshine on Sunday, highs about 77. It's 5.07. WBUR supporters include Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Today, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Alabama violated the Voting Rights Act by failing to draw a second majority black congressional district. Alabama's population is 27 percent black. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. By a 5-4 to four vote, a coalition of conservative and liberal justices reaffirmed the court's 1986 precedent interpreting how legislative districts must be drawn under the landmark Voting Rights Act as amended in 1982. The court said that in Alabama, a state where there are seven congressional seats and one in four voters is black, the Republican-dominated state legislature had denied African-American voters a reasonable chance to elect a second representative of their choice. The decision was a surprise in light of the conservative court's prior decisions gutting other major provisions in the voting rights law. Chief Justice Roberts, who authored or joined those earlier decisions, today wrote for the court majority to preserve the way the voting rights law has been applied for nearly 40 years in redistricting cases. UCLA law professor Richard Hassan has written extensively about election law. Given this court's recent record on the Voting Rights Act, This is welcome and surprising. At issue in the case was Alabama's congressional redistricting plan adopted after the 2020 census. The Republican-dominated legislature drew new district lines that packed large numbers of black voters into one congressional district and then spread out the remaining black population in other districts so that black voters had little chance of electing a second representative of their choice in a racially polarized state. A three-judge district court that included two Trump-appointed judges found that the state legislature's plan amounted to an illegal racial gerrymander under the Voting Rights Act, and today the Supreme Court agreed. We see no reason to disturb the district court's careful findings, wrote Chief Justice Roberts. The Alabama legislature's approach to redistricting, he added, was an attempt to remake our jurisprudence anew and was wrong in both theory and practice. Again, Professor Hassan. What's left of the Voting Rights Act is what was left before the court took this case, which is that minority voters have a fighting chance to get fair representation, as Congress told them they could get in 1982. So it's preserving the status quo. 
University of Iowa election law expert Derek Muller agrees, noting that a contrary ruling would have gutted the last remaining pillar of the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act, undoing decades of settled law. That also sort of speaks to Chief Justice Roberts' approach to saying, look, we're not going to rock the boat. This is not something new. But NYU's Richard Pildes notes that there is one thing new in the opinion, something that he says may at first blush be missed. I think the decision is more than just an affirmation of the status quo, because this whole case is based on new technological developments that make it easier to find potential Voting Rights Act districts. With this technology, you know, as this case demonstrated, plaintiffs can find potential VRA districts in a way that would have been much more difficult 10 years ago even. Indeed, it was the new technology of computer-generated districts based on traditional criteria like compactness and keeping counties together that produced the second majority black district in Alabama, a district that now will likely result in a second black member of Congress from Alabama and possibly a second Democrat to boot. Joining the Chief Justice in the majority today were fellow conservative Brett Kavanaugh and the court's three liberal justices. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote the principal dissent, a 47-page exegesis reiterating his long-held position that the court was dividing the nation into racially segregated districts. Roberts, in his majority opinion, acknowledged that concern, noting that it's not new, but he said that today's decision simply holds that a faithful application of our precedents and a fair reading of the record before us do not bear them out here. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. It has been a surreal couple of days here on the East Coast. Just looking down the street here from NPR, the U.S. Capitol is cloaked in a smoky haze. The sky is this weird white. Mm. Elsa, I have seen so many photos of skies like that out west where you are, but I have never really felt it here, this whole waking up with a scratchy throat, scratchy eyes. I know. I mean, Mary Louise, welcome to our world. It's just something we're used to living with out here in California. Like, you know, we have a whole wildfire season. It's not unusual for a big fire to be burning close enough that we see the skies change color and we're all told to stay inside. And, you know, you keep obsessively refreshing your air quality maps on your phone to see if you can finally go running that day. Exactly. I decided not to go running. Skip it this morning. (laughs) Sleep in. Which I guess a lot of Americans are getting a glimpse right now of what you West Coasters are well used to. This is what scientists have been predicting. The planet is warming. We are going to see more wildfires, more severe wildfires, and more and more of us are going to have to get used to living with smoke. Absolutely. And with that in mind, I have Clara Jeffrey on the line with us now. She's editor-in-chief of Mother Jones. And as a longtime resident of San Francisco, she has had a lot of experience living with smoky air. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Elsa. Well, thanks for being with us. Okay, so what practical tips do you have for dealing with all of this? Like what is in your quote-unquote smoky air toolkit? My advice is just that it's time for folks who are not as used to this as we are to download some air quality index maps so that they can have a sense of not only what the air is like around them right now, but what they might expect. You could use painter's tape to seal your windows if you have old leaky windows like so many of us in San Francisco have. Mm -hmm. You can do things like not run your bathroom fans and hood exhaust fans because those tend to pull air directly from outside. Are air purifiers worth it? 
You know, I think they are certainly out West. I have a few in my household in addition to whatever HVAC systems are available. So sadly, I do think it's probably something that more of the rest of the country is going to invest in to sort of catch as much particulate matter as you possibly can and keep your indoor air as as good as it can be. All right. So the best policy is to stay indoors. But like if you're someone who needs to go outside, like to walk your dog, or maybe you're one of those people who really, really need to exercise outside, what would you recommend that people wear or do while they're outside? I don't think anyone should be exercising outside when air quality is in the dangerous to hazardous zone or even the unhealthy zone. Wildfire smoke is 10 times more dangerous than car exhaust and smog. And any kind of smoke can have permanent damage, not just to your lungs, but you know, it has cognitive effects, particularly when, when little kids are exposed. So it's, it's don't. Running just don't. Smoke. Just don't. Right. But if it's unavoidable, like I do have to walk my dog, do you recommend wearing an N95 mask. Yeah, N95s and K95s and all of those are great. The particles in wildfire smoke are bigger than virus particulates, as it were. Mm-hmm. So even a bandana or something like that that we sort of learned doesn't offer you much protection against COVID does offer you some protection. Well, wildfire smoke, you know, it's in the news currently because of the Canadian wildfires. But We're also heading into peak wildfire season out here in the West and in the Southwest. So what is your long-term preparation routine? Well, I took this unfortunate incident for the East Coast to reorder my furnace filters and make sure that I had air purifiers in the house, that I have clean filters for that, that I have enough N95 masks and that kind of a thing. It's sadly the preparation and skills we all learn for COVID, many of them apply here. So a lot of us are well-practiced. You may not know it, but yes. Clara Jeffrey, Editor-in-Chief of Mother Jones, thank you so much for all your advice. Thank you so much. If you've been out and about recently, you may have stumbled across a pickleball game or two. The game takes place on a small court with a paddle and a plastic ball. It's kind of somewhere in between tennis and ping pong. And the popularity of the sport has grown and grown. There's just one problem, the noise. Pickleball is like the worst of both worlds, you know? It's loud and it's high-pitched. That's Mark Dent. He's a journalist who reported on Pickleball's noise problem for the Hustle newsletter. He started looking into this when he saw lawsuits in local publications. Over the last several months, I just kept seeing them kind of pop up. And, And all these lawsuits, of course, were largely over pickleball being too noisy. So I'm like, how can like pickleball be less noisy? Like, is anybody working on it? Enter Bob Unitich. Before he was a pickleball lover, he was an engineer. And when it comes to the noise problem, he gets it. You can't take pop, pop, pop for 12 hours a day, every day, and remain sane. (laughs) No, you can't. And so he began to dig into it. Pickleball sound exists right in that most sensitive range. An interesting thing I learned along the way is that garbage truck backup beepers are right in the same pitch of pickleball. Why did they pick that sound for beepers? Because it's the most annoying frequency. 
Unitich and a couple other engineers started measuring the sounds from a pickleball game and thinking of solutions. We built a tall chamber. We found dropping a ball, if there was no wind, no air, enabled you to get a very predictable speed. And so a ball hitting one paddle will give you a different sound than a ball hitting a different paddle. So the material of the equipment helps and sound barriers, but that's expensive. The best way to mitigate noise is to fix it before the problem starts and build courts that are far enough away from people. Here's Mark Dent again. It's kind of like having to invest more money on the front end and planning to avoid this potential major disruption and, and lawsuit, uh, conceivably at least, on the back end. Yunitich worries the noise problem will slow the growth of his favorite sport. He's hoping the solutions will help so he can keep playing. I was just playing with some older friends and two young high school girls, I guess, were playing. We decided to go over and ask them to play because we think it's so fun to have two young people who think they're going to beat us find that they can't beat us. <laughs> that was Bob Unitich and Mark Dent. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Wall Street was on the rise today. The Dow rose a half percent. S&P hit a new high for the year as it picked up about six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq grew a full percent. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. In Boston Seaport, Massport is putting repurposed shipping containers just off the Boston Fish Pier on Northern Avenue, where fishermen can sell their catch directly to the public. Massport's Andrew Hargan says the tenants on the pier have been asking for a pop-up fish market. One thing that we've heard from our tenants on the fish pier for years is we'd love to have an opportunity to sell seafood on a retail basis at the pier. It's challenging to bring the public down onto the pier just given the maritime operations. He says the new public space will be offered to nonprofit groups to run seminars on climate change, the harbor, and the seafood industry. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologic CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. We want to give a huge thanks to everybody who helped us out during our June fundraiser. It ended just a couple of hours ago. More than 700 people became monthly contributors, and we are now, as you can tell, back to uninterrupted programming. If you didn't get a chance to pledge and you'd still like to, go to WBUR.org. But once again, to everybody who pledged during the fund drive, thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BG Catering Concepts. Planning weddings, corporate events, and other significant celebrations to feel special. BGCateringConcepts.com. Lots of clouds around tonight. Temperatures about 50. Tomorrow, look for clouds and showers, maybe afternoon thunderstorms. Highs in the mid-60s. 63 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Thanks to advancements in artificial intelligence, computers are starting to sound like real humans. AI can now be trained to realistically imitate the voices of celebrities, loved ones, even our co-workers. Kenny Malone and Jeff Guo from NPR's Planet Money podcast set out to explore this brave new world of artificial intelligence. The singer Grimes may have turned herself into the most efficient pop star on the planet. That is a song made with an AI version of Grimes's singing voice. That voice was entirely generated by artificial intelligence. Yeah, earlier this year, she announced that she'd let anybody make a song using her AI voice, as long as they split the royalty checks with her. And in just a few weeks, more than 300 new songs had been created using Grimes's AI voice. Which means that Grimes may have been at home sipping a mojito while her AI clone voice worked hard to sing this song. And this song. And this song. And this is a fascinating new business model for a pop star, using AI to basically multiply yourself. I realized this was pretty accessible technology. And to be honest, I didn't even think about it or ask my team. I just tweeted that people could use my voice and it went viral. That is Grimes, uh, sort of. Right. So Grimes couldn't do a sit-down interview with us, but she did answer some of our questions over email. And she agreed to have an AI replica of her own speaking voice read her answers out loud. Because the future is now, and it is weird. It's very weird. And Grimes told us that letting people clone her singing voice has actually felt like a way to to let less famous musicians sort of borrow her voice and her fame to help build their budding careers. I run into absurdly creative humans all the time, but not a lot of people get to be artists. A lot of luck is involved in that. It's hard to build a fan base, and it's hard to get your work in front of the public. So if there's ways to reduce these algorithmic barriers by letting people inhabit my being, then I think we're moving in a direction I really like. Again, that was an AI Grimes reading words sent to us by the real Grimes. And, you know, clearly Grimes sees this AI voice technology as an opportunity. But as economics reporters, we were a little bit more skeptical here. Yeah, because, you know, automation has often been a harsh part of history. It creates winners and losers. And, you know, as people who talk into microphones for a living, like we're doing right now, this automation of the voice is troubling. Like, Will we be winners like Grimes, or or could this technology just replace Jeff and me altogether? And so we figured we should run a test to see, can this technology replace us? Or uh, more specifically, our colleague. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. Today on the show, a series of unfortunate events. That is a real recording of the real Robert Smith, who gave us permission to try and clone his voice. Then we found a company called Well Said Labs who, full disclosure, agreed to help us for free with this. They asked us for even more recordings of the real Robert Smith. And I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Robert Smith. And I'm Robert Smith. We sent those recordings over to Well Said with transcripts of all the words he said, which were more than just his name, to be clear. And then a couple weeks later, Well Said jumped on a Zoom with us. Hey, Kenny, how's it going? We're uh, we're very excited. Yeah, let's start with... That is Ryan Johnson. She is the senior engineer who was in charge of creating our little synthetic Robert Smith. So what we wanted to do was kind of show the process 
from beginning to what synthetic Robert sounds like in the end. Yes. So step zero. Take Ryan explained that in the beginning, she had a computer look at some written text, and then the computer guessed how Robert Smith might say those words. And then it checked that guess against a real recording of Robert to see how far off it was. And then it tweaked its approach, tried it again, over and over and over. And Ryan wanted to show us how that synthetic Robert voice had evolved through the process. So if you're ready to hear step zero, here we go. <laughs> that sounds like a, like a swarm of bees are coming out of Robert's mouth. That's right. It's gibberish. But after about 100,000 training cycles, the voice got better. I'm synthetic Robert, and I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make history. What? That is pretty good. And here's the final final. I'm a synthetic Robert, and I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to make history. Holy crap. Oh, my God. That last part, it sounded... <laughs> oh, my God. That's bonkers. <laughs> and with that like AI program done and written, now Jeff and I can log into WellSaid's website, type in something that we want synthetic Robert to say, and boom. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. I mean... Put him in my fair lady right now. <laughs> it's pretty good, right? I mean, I can't tell the difference, honestly. And because of how much this sounds like the real Robert, well said, absolutely required his permission. They can monitor everything we have his voice clone say, and they're going to shut synthetic Robert down for good after our little experiment. An experiment with one final test. We called up the real Robert Smith. Hello, Kenny Malone and Jeff. How's it going? It's good. It's going great. Um, hey, wait. Oh, what's happening here? Somebody else is joining here. What is up, organic life forms? Synthetic Robert has entered the chat. What <laughs> the hell? I just want to say, Robert, you, or should I say we have a beautiful voice? <laughs> Robert's hands are on his face. Robert is screaming. <laughs> He's massaging his forehead. Are you okay? That's better than I thought. It's got the pauses and the corrections. And I guess I, I, I guess I should be a little bit freaked out, but like the first place my mind goes uh -huh. is this could allow me to be lazier than I am, <laughs> which is how do I do the fun stuff and make robot me mm -hmm. do the chores? And, you know, you could imagine if, like, you're a celebrity, you know, have your voice clone read your TV commercials or narrate your memoir or, like, whatever, and you just lounge on the beach. That is a nice future. But it's clear that this technology is also good enough to create, like, stock voices of fictional people. Yeah, fictional people that you wouldn't actually have to pay. And that's one of the many concerns that people have about the future uses of this technology. It's part of why AI has become a huge issue for actors and even screenwriters. And even radio reporters. Uh, but in our specific case, Planet Money is not going to replace us with synthetic Robert anytime soon. You know, especially since, again, it's going to be destroyed after this experiment. But before he gets deleted forever, we did want to give synthetic Robert a final moment with the real Robert. Seriously, Robert, such a big fan. I'm a big fan of yours. You're sounding great. Oh, thank you. That means so much coming from you. Well, listen, I, I feel like I've been a little bit of a mentor to you, really. And I think you have a big future. I mean, until they destroy you and bury you in a, in a pit out back from some Silicon Valley. Wait, what about burying me? <laughs> no, no. Ignore the burying part. Live in the moment. That's one thing that I've learned as a radio host. 
Kenny Malone, Jeff Guo, Synthetic Robert Smith, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about five minutes on All Things Considered. Emerson Hospital has shut down an outpatient addiction treatment program, and the doctor who ran it says that's going to make it harder for people with addiction problems to get help. In the forecast overnight tonight, lots of clouds, maybe some showers, temperatures about 52 for a low. Could get rained on again tomorrow, maybe some thunderstorms as well. Temperatures in the mid-60s, and then the yucky weather should last into the weekend. Clouds and sporadic showers on Saturday, a little bit milder, coming close to 70 degrees. Sunshine on Sunday, highs about 77. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU College of Fine Arts. Earn your graduate degree at a tight-knit arts community in a vibrant university. bu.edu slash cfa slash grad. When water from the Colorado River goes to California, 80% of it is used for agriculture. So when water levels drop, the first cuts tend to land on farmers. You can't solve a water supply problem with a food supply problem. But as the single largest water user in a region with less water, can California agriculture adapt? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Washington, President Biden and his British counterpart are reiterating their commitment to help Ukraine repel Russia's ongoing invasion. During the leaders' wide-ranging talks today, they also agreed to step up cooperation on the clean energy transition, as well as emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. Here's British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The U.S. and the U.K. are the world's foremost democratic AI powers. So today, President and I agreed to work together on AI safety, including multilaterally. Sunak says they also agreed to launch talks on a deal to make both countries more resilient in the critical minerals needed for clean energy and other uses. Both leaders also spoke about the need to deter Russia from further aggression. Biden says he believes Congress will continue providing additional funding to Ukraine, despite some opposing voices on Capitol Hill. The controversial televangelist and former Republican politician Pat Robertson has died at the age of 93, as NPR's Sarah McCammon tells us, Robertson was a pioneer in religious broadcasting and a leading figure in the rise of the Christian right. Pat Robertson may be best remembered for his decades hosting the 700 Club, the long-running talk show on the Christian broadcasting network which he founded, and for boosting right-wing political causes. Here he is with then-President Donald Trump in 2017. There seems to be a visceral hatred of you in the part of the left and they won't quit. Uh, it, does it bother you? Robertson ran unsuccessfully for the Republican presidential nomination in 1988 before going on to found the Christian Coalition. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Norfolk. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 168 points, up five-tenths of a percent. This is NPR. Russian President Vladimir Putin has welcomed an upcoming African leaders' peace mission to Ukraine and Russia. As Kate Bartlett reports from South Africa, reports South African President Cyril Ramaphosa 
and five other leaders are traveling to the region to propose a peace plan. Ramaphosa spoke to Putin about the trip on the phone on Wednesday night. Ramaphosa's office released a statement about the call. It says the peace mission is planned for mid-June. The leaders of Zambia, Senegal, the Republic of Congo, Uganda and Egypt are also part of the initiative. Most African countries have remained neutral in the Ukraine conflict, though some, like South Africa, have been accused of favoring Moscow. In a press briefing to African journalists this week, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba said Kiev was open to the African leader's visit, but stressed it must not, quote, involve any secession of Ukrainian territory to Russia. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. The Justice Department is moving toward a possible criminal indictment of former President Donald Trump over his mishandling of classified documents. Legal experts say that prosecutors have settled on Florida rather than Washington, D.C. as an appropriate venue for the charges. Trump's legal team has been notified of the potential indictment. An investigation began last year when the FBI was alerted that Trump took home a trove of government documents marked classified when he left office. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Doctors in training at Mass General Brigham have voted to unionize by a wide margin. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports this is the latest in a string of victories around the country for the union, which is an affiliate of the Service Employees International. The new bargaining unit will represent 2,500 resident physicians and fellows across Massachusetts General, Brigham and Women's, and several other hospitals. The trainees say they're fighting for better pay and benefits to compensate for their long and grueling work schedules. They say they also want to negotiate help for young doctors struggling with the costs of housing, fertility treatments, and child care. Hospital leaders oppose the union effort and say they're disappointed by the results of the election. They say they'll continue to provide high-quality training, working within the parameters of collective bargaining. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale-McCluskey. The MBTA Board of Directors today approved a budget for the next fiscal year. The T's Chief Financial Officer, Marian O'Hara, says the $2.7 billion budget stands apart from those of recent years. The budget is different than prior years as the size and scope and scale of the investment, in particular for safety, are massive. O'Hara said more than half the new spending will go towards safety and training initiatives. Fiscal year 2024 begins the 1st of July. And Dr. Ashish Jha is returning to Brown University after he led the federal COVID-19 response for the past year. Jha will resume his role as dean of Brown School of Public Health in July. He says the pandemic exposed weaknesses in public health and public health care systems. 64 degrees. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Tonight in Cleveland, Red Sox will put Matt Dermody on the mound for his season debut. Dermody is replacing the injured Chris Sale. Cleveland has tapped Aaron Savali as pitcher. It is the final game of the Sox series with the Guardians, 7-10 start time. Each team has so far won one game of the series. In the forecast overnight tonight, rain should have lows about 52 degrees. Then for tomorrow, about 63 for a high. Clouds continue tomorrow, showers as well. And for Saturday, pretty much the same. Clouds and showers, maybe some thunderstorms, too, could warm to nearly 70 on Saturday. Then for Sunday, sunshine, highs about 77. It's 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. 
a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Emerson Hospital in Concord has shut down its outpatient medication-based addiction treatment program a few years after it opened. Hospital officials say they're shifting priorities and the program didn't have enough demand. But as WBUR's Lynn Jolliker reports, the doctor who ran the program claims the reasons Emerson has cited for ending it don't add up. And she says the part of the state she served needs more treatment, not less. Feeling good? How about your mood? Mood's fine. Joey Kinghorn chats with Dr. Stephanie Strategus as she prepares to give him an injection of sublocade. That's the extended release form of the medication buprenorphine, which is considered a gold standard to treat opioid use disorder. Any cravings or urges to use opioids or any thoughts about it? None at all. Good. Kinghorn says he became addicted to OxyContin in 2005 after he broke his foot. He was able to stop taking the pills on his own. But in 2019, doctors prescribed the painkiller again after a procedure. Kinghorn fell deep into his addiction. About a year later, an online search led him to this clinic, located in an old white colonial at Emerson Hospital in Concord. All right, let's see your belly. He's come here for an injection in his abdomen once a month. It's done wonders for me. It literally saved my life. In addition to this clinic, Strategus ran a small one out of an Emerson medical building in Groton. She prescribed medication for drug, alcohol, and nicotine addictions. The Groton part of the program was initially funded by a federal grant responding to the rate of opioid overdoses in some neighboring towns. We sat on a big coalition of people in the region to figure out what would be a meaningful intervention and how to save lives in that area, and it did measurably save lives. The treatment program served a swath of suburban towns along the Route 2 corridor, including Acton and Littleton, and rural towns moving northwest through Middlesex County, including Pepperell and Townsend. But Emerson Health officials shut down the program Friday. After WBUR's inquiries, Emerson released a statement. Chief Medical Officer Dr. Barry Kitch said medication treatment for substance use disorders is more accessible than it was when Emerson started the program in 2019, due to things including telehealth. He said as a result, Emerson is focusing on emergency and inpatient behavioral health care. Kitch also said a limited number of patients were seen in the program, not enough to maintain the service in challenging post-pandemic economic conditions. Documents provided by the state show there are no other outpatient medication treatment programs for opioid use disorder in the area the program served. Strategus says she kept a full schedule seeing hundreds of patients, and she disagrees with Emerson's decision to end the program. It doesn't make sense for the amount of good that this service does for the hospital for the community, for the patients. Concern about the treatment program's future started a year ago. According to internal emails reviewed by WBUR, Emerson's finance department said the program was losing money. Strategus questioned the numbers. She claims the program's operating expenses were much lower than the hospital initially documented. 
Emerson Health declined to grant us interviews, and it did not respond to several of the questions we asked, including about the finances. In the chief medical officer's statement, he said Emerson Health has a long-standing commitment to support patients with behavioral health needs, including those addressing the challenge of addiction. But Strategus says Emerson's move means many people will have to go further for treatment to cities including Boston, Lowell, and Leominster. The more barriers you put in place, the less people are going to engage in this treatment. You have to make it really, really easy to get care in order for the care to be effective. One of the people who helped lead the community response to the opioid crisis in rural Middlesex County is Susan Buckholz. She co-chairs a grassroots organization that advocates for more access to resources for vulnerable populations in north-central Massachusetts. Buckholz says Emerson's termination of Strategus and ending of the program hurts people in the region, which she calls a treatment desert. These are people who were just desperate for services. They are in Emerson's backyard And the fact that her facility grew so quickly with the number of patients is just evidence of how much unmet need existed in that area. A patient who lives near Emerson, who's also named Joe and doesn't want to use his last name for fear of future job discrimination, says he's stable on the treatment he's been getting from Strategus. But he worries about others looking for help people still in the throes of their addictions who don't have stable jobs like him and employers who will be understanding when they have to drive 30 minutes or more to get their addiction medication. You lose your job, you get depressed, what do you do? You want to go get high. Joe says he doesn't understand what Emerson Health is doing. Why would you take out the one opportunity in this area? I love Emerson Hospital. I don't understand why they're trying to turn away from this community. It just doesn't make sense. Emerson says it's arranged for all of the program's patients to have seamless access to treatment elsewhere. According to Strategus, that's because she accepted a job at a program in Leominster, more than 20 miles west of Emerson and Concord, where she's been allowed to transfer her patients. She says most of her nearly 230 remaining patients are going with her. Any redness from last time? No. Including Joey Kinghorn. He'll have to travel a little further from his home in Littleton, and he's legally blind, so getting to treatment isn't easy to begin with. My parents are going to have to sacrifice their time to get me there. Strategists and community advocates say they worry about how the change will affect patients who face even bigger transportation barriers. Some don't have cars or have lost their licenses due to their addictions. And disruptions reduce the chance of recovery. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions and from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. Coming up, we remember controversial televangelist Pat Robertson, who died today at the age of 93. First, though, President Biden was supposed to hold a big Pride Month celebration tonight at the White House. The dangerous air quality here caused by those wildfires in Canada means he has to postpone the event. He did take the opportunity during a press conference to talk about some of the issues facing the LGBTQ community, notably anti-trans laws that are being signed in Republican-led states around the country. It's wrong that extreme officials are pushing hateful bills targeting transgender children, terrifying families, and criminalizing doctors. These are our kids. These are our neighbors. NPR's Franco Ordonez was at that press conference and joins me now. Hey, Franco. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so the president was attacking these state laws, laws that target transgender kids and their families. Is he actually proposing to do something about them? Well, I mean, one thing is he wanted to say some of the things that he was planning to talk about tonight before he had to postpone the event. And he started off by condemning what he described as a wave of cruel laws that he said play on people fears. We have some hysterical and I would argue prejudiced people who are engaged in all what you see going on around the country. It's a it's an appeal to fear and it's appeal that is totally thoroughly unjustified and ugly. Now he wants Congress to pass the Equality Act, but in the meantime, his administration is taking a few steps on its own. For example, naming a new point person at the Education Department to address an increase in book bans. That person's going to let schools know about the bans and that they can violate federal civil rights laws if they create a hostile environment for students. And there's also going to be some more training on threats for community centers and clinics and small businesses. Uh, I will note that all this came up during a press conference with the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. What did he and Biden talk about what they agreed to in their meetings? Well, what they agreed to was to work together on some mutual interests, such as critical minerals. Those are those elements used in important technology like semiconductors and clean energy. Biden emphasized that the need to strengthen supply chains of critical minerals to protect the national security interests of both countries. And they also agreed to work together on artificial intelligence safety. Sunak boasted that the UK will be hosting the first global summit on AI safety later this year. It is a touchy issue, though, because Biden is also working with the European Union on AI issues. And the UK is not part of the EU, obviously. But the White House has been taking a closer look, and Biden said there are some security risks that must be addressed. And did they also talk, Franklin, about Ukraine? Because the UK, along with the US, has been at the forefront of, of supporting Ukraine against Russia. Did that come up? Absolutely. I mean, their message was that they can't let up support. The US and UK are two of the leading providers of military aid. They are the two leading providers. And there are a lot of questions about whether the House Republican leaders will continue to back such large aid packages. Sunak actually spent some time on Capitol Hill talking to those leaders. Mm -hmm. And he says Western leaders need to send a message to Russian President Putin that the Western support is not going to go away. White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thanks. Thank you, Mary Louise.
This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, remembering an iconic reporter for National Public Radio. That's ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. In the forecast, you'll need the shades out there now and the umbrella. Tonight, we should have more showers, lots of clouds around, down about 52 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should be right around 63 for a high. Clouds persist, and so do the showers. And for Saturday, pretty much the same thing. Clouds and showers, maybe thunderstorms thrown into the mix. And then could warm to about 77 degrees on Sunday with lots of sunshine. A huge thank you to everybody who helped us out during our June fundraiser. The fund drive ended earlier this afternoon. More than 700 people became monthly contributors this week. We are so grateful to you. We are back to uninterrupted programming now. And so if you didn't get a chance to give and you would still like to, just go to WBUR.org. Once again, thank you so much. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. French pop singer Christina the Queens wants you to know there are no actual queens on stage with him when he performs. It's just him, Chris. It's a very tiny French man with lots, lots of crazy ideas. <laughs> Moving forward to you with his masks falling off slowly. The creative force behind Christine and the Queens discusses his new album, Paranoia, Angels, True Love, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In April, our newsroom got an email from Wade Goodwin, our longtime correspondent in Texas. He wrote... Since 1991, I've been hitting deadlines, and today is my last day. I've loved it, and all of y'all, completely. I've got nothing but love. Today, we lost Wade. He died of cancer in Dallas. He was 63 years old. NPR's Debbie Elliott remembers his reporting and his singular voice. Wade Goodwin's soothing bass had a way of pulling you a little closer to the radio. It's 4 p.m. on Saturday, and it's scorching in Tyler, Texas's Bergfeld Park. 97 with humidity so thick, you're sweating in seconds. A profile once described his voice as warm butter melting over barbecued sweet corn. But Wade argued it was his writing that really mattered. And he was right. If his voice pulled you in, his storytelling kept you listening. Wind your way down Enterprise Street to the poor section of Lake Charles, where a row of shotgun houses sit close. Here you'll find the damage that's not going to be so easy to fix. Irma Chavez, in her 60s, is sweeping up glass on her porch, and like many who stayed behind, she's desperate for a cigarette. I wish y'all had been coming back to kick me in the to buy me some cigarettes, but I guess the Lord might want me to He's transported us to Lake Charles with telling details that illuminate just what people are going through after a hurricane. In Louisiana, you hug your NASCAR teddy bear when the big blow comes, even if you're a barrel-chested National Guardsman. You know, Wade was a poet. NPR senior editor Steve Drummond. The little detail, the little color or sound that he'd seen out in the field, and it just made what he said sparkle. And then you combine that with that he had this great big deep 
rich voice and it just made it a pleasure to listen to him on the radio even if he was talking about something bad you kind of wanted to listen to it because wade told the story he was just an amazing storyteller Radio storytelling is what pulled Wade Goodwin into journalism. He'd been a history major at the University of Texas, a natural field of study for the son of noted historian Lawrence Goodwin. Out of college, Wade left Austin to work as a political organizer in New York City. There, he got hooked on NPR member station WNYC. He told Current Magazine in 2016 that he was so absorbed by the voices and stories he heard, he decided to pursue a freelance public radio career back home in Texas. His first big assignment came in 1993. Good morning. The FBI today begins the search for bodies in the ruins of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. NPR assigned him to cover the standoff between the federal government and cult leader David Koresh. As a wintry dawn broke over the central Texas landscape on February 28th, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms rushed through their preparations for the assault on David Koresh and his followers in the Branch Davidian compound. They were spurred on by the knowledge that the element of surprise they'd been counting on was gone and that heavily armed cult members were likely awaiting them a few hundred yards away. It was the first of countless tragic news events Wade would bear witness to. Mass shootings at churches and schools, the Boy Scout sexual abuse scandal, and right at home, the ambush killing of Dallas police officers in 2016. Wade, let's start with you. Can you just give us an idea of what this city has been through this morning? It's been a very rough day, uh, the roughest day the city has had in some 50 years. He had a knack for politics, doing profiles over the years of a host of rising political stars from Texas, among them George W. and Laura Bush, Rick Perry, Ted Cruz, Dick Cheney, and Beto O'Rourke. But for Wade, some of his most rewarding work was covering breaking news, which he told Current Magazine offered rich opportunities for meaningful journalism. One of his biggest stories was the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Domestic terrorists had set off a truck bomb at the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building, killing and injuring hundreds, including kids in a daycare. Well, you know, I think it's trite to, uh, to say a community is hit hard by any disaster, but uh, this small, what is really a small Midwestern town, has really taken the, the tragedy very hard, and especially the deaths of these children seems to have shaken everybody. When NPR I managing editor Vicki Walton-James says Wade brought a distinctive voice to the network's breaking news coverage. He was really good at infusing humanity into those situations that sometimes people just want to turn away from. They don't want to think about them. And he was able to put you in the place and to help you understand what had happened to someone and what the broader implications were. She says he also had a passion for stories about injustice. He wanted to get people the help that they needed, and he wanted to help right wrongs. Like the story of James Lee Woodard, who came to Wade's home studio in Dallas for an interview. The very same day he'd been exonerated and gotten out of jail. My two big dogs, Miles and Rosie, came running into the room with stuffed toys in their mouths to demonstrate just what fine guard dogs they were. Miles jumped up and gave James Lee a big smooch right on the lips. Come on, guys, leave the man alone, I said. Get out of here. Woodard stopped me, saying, no, I love dogs. 
I guess it's been a while, I said, regretting the words as they came out of my mouth. Woodard teared up. Twenty-seven years, he whispered as he got down on both knees to play with Miles and Rosie. I stood there a while and watched and then sat. Take your time, Mr. Woodard, I said. The interview can wait. Wade was eager to share Texas cultural gems and bits of forgotten history and folklore. That earned him a bit of a cult following among NPR listeners who flat out loved the way he could spin a tale. Joe Bowman was so good with a single-action revolver, he could turn an aspirin into powder at 20 yards. Bowman could take a playing card, set it on edge, and peel it in two with a single bullet. Spanning three decades with NPR, Wade Goodwin gave voice to much joy and also much trauma. As he reflected 25 years later on the toll of the Oklahoma City bombing, Wade gave listeners a glimpse of what it was like to consider all that he'd seen. When I tried to record the narrative for the story, describing the bagpiper playing Amazing Grace, my throat closed up at that part and I couldn't go on. I told the recording engineers to give me five and then tried again. To my frustration, I choked up a second time. Eventually, I got through it, but someone must have called my editor, and a few minutes later, the phone rang. It's time to go home, he told me. No, no, I insisted. I need to stay. I think there's other conspirators. He was having none of it. You've done a good job, Goodwin. Go home to Texas. And so I did. Wade Goodwin, NPR News. Good job indeed, Goodwin. Find rest at home. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. Our elite correspondent and friend, Wade Goodwin, is survived by his wife and two daughters. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru and its retailers, partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at Subaru.com care. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Red Sox have a chance to capture the series out in Cleveland tonight as the Sox and Guardians play game three out of three. 7-10 start time tonight. Matt Dermody will make his debut for Boston. Aaron Savali pitches for Cleveland. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUH Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. How do you negotiate a colossal and complex issue like the debt crisis? Coming up, we'll find out from the lead negotiator. We saw the partisan process play out. Now we need to pivot to a bipartisan process. That's the only thing that's going to make it to the president's desk and avoid default. Today is Thursday, June 8th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the National Eating Disorders Association has taken down a chatbot after the bot produced diet and weight loss advice. The nonprofit had already closed its helpline, staffed by actual humans. The controversial televangelist and former Republican presidential hopeful Pat Robertson has died. He founded Regent University and the Christian Broadcasting Network. And new research shows how an octopus can remake its brain in response to changes in the environment to keep it functioning properly in shifting temperatures. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled today Alabama violated the Landmark Voting Rights Act by failing to draw a second majority black congressional district in a state that is 27 percent black. The ruling was a surprise from a court that's previously been hostile to the voting rights law. More from NPR's Nina Totenberg. By a 5-4 to four vote, a coalition of conservative and liberal justices reaffirmed the court's 1986 precedent interpreting how legislative districts must be drawn under the landmark Voting Rights Act. The court said that in Alabama, a state with a 27 percent black voting population and seven congressional seats, the Republican-dominated state legislature had racially gerrymandered districts and denied African-American voters a reasonable chance to elect a second representative of their choice. Chief Justice John Roberts, joined by fellow conservative Brett Kavanaugh and the court's three liberals, upheld a new map that likely will result in a second black member of Congress from Alabama and a second Democrat to boot. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Hundreds of flights into and out of U.S. airports were delayed again today by the smoky haze from wildfires in Canada. NPR's Joel Rose reports federal aviation officials are delaying flights into several airports in the Northeast. Hazy conditions and low visibility led federal aviation officials to pause some flights into Philadelphia, as well as LaGuardia Airport in New York City for a second day. The Federal Aviation Administration said it would continue to delay flights into both airports, as well as Newark, New Jersey, another major airport in the New York area, so that planes could land safely. The FAA warned that smoky conditions could extend further south to Washington, D.C. and Charlotte, North Carolina. That meant another day of headaches for travelers on the East Coast and beyond as delays rippled across the country. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he raised human rights concerns while he was in Saudi Arabia this week, but his Saudi counterpart says his country will not respond to any pressure. More from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Secretary Blinken is praising the Saudi reform agenda known as Vision 2030, saying he believes it will be more successful if Saudi Arabia expands human rights and draws in talent from around the world. And so I think it's on its own merits and in Saudi Arabia's interest to continue to pursue uh, this modernization, including the expansion of human rights. 
Saudi Arabia's foreign minister says the reforms are driven by the needs of the Saudi people and not by pressure from others. The two also discussed Yemen, Iran, and the potential for Saudi Arabia to normalize ties with Israel. The Saudis first want progress in resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow's up 168 points. The S&P 500 rose 26 points. This is NPR. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Two child sexual abuse victims of former Boston police officer Patrick Rose are suing the Department of Children and Families, the city of Boston, and others. They allege they failed to try to stop Rose after he was accused of abuse. Rose was first accused of child rape in 1995, but was allowed to return to the force. He later became the president of the Patrolman's Union. Rose is currently serving a 10-year prison sentence for sexually abusing six children. There's been no comment from the plaintiffs. Groups that help immigrants in Chelsea say they're seeing more people arriving from Florida. The new arrivals say they are fleeing Florida's anti-immigration policies under the governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. WBUR's Kyrie Thompson has more. Gladys Vega, the executive director of the social organization La Colaborativa, says 43 immigrants arrived in Chelsea from Miami last week and ties their flight directly to DeSantis's crackdowns on immigration. We're getting a wave of new immigrants from Florida driving here, and they are afraid of new policies that in Florida are being in effect as we speak. Vega tells WBUR's Radio Boston these arrivals add to the influx of new immigrants coming from the southern border. She also says the increasing demand for assistance is straining Chelsea's efforts to recover economically after the pandemic. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Kyrie Thompson. An outpatient addiction treatment program, Emerson Hospital, opened in 2019, has shut down as of this week. Emerson says it's shifting priorities amid weak demand. But as WBUR's Lynn Jolliker reports, the doctor who ran the program disagrees with the decision. Dr. Stephanie Strategus prescribed medications to treat opioid and alcohol addictions at a clinic at Emerson Hospital in Concord and at a medical office in Groton. Emerson Health says the program had a limited number of patients. Strategus says she had hundreds, and many will now have to drive further for their treatment. The more barriers you put in place, the less people are going to engage in this treatment. You have to make it really, really easy to get care in order for the care to be effective. Emerson says it's focusing on inpatient and emergency behavioral health programs. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. U.S. Senator Ed Markey took to the Senate floor today to talk about the dangerous wildfire smoke and warn of the growing climate crisis. Markey says the Canadian wildfires and those in the U.S. are the result of the warming planet. When you superheat the planet and create searing heat over densely wooded forests, Fires are not a surprise. The air quality in our area has improved after it was unhealthful over the past few days as winds pulled smoke down from Canada. And the state of New Hampshire is asking anybody going near its ponds and lakes to stay away from loon nests from now through most of July. It's nesting season for the birds. New Hampshire's Loon Preservation Committee says loons often build their nests right by the water's edge. State biologists say half of loon nests in New Hampshire fail each year because they're disturbed by humans. 
Got sunshine weirdly breaking through the clouds, but keep the umbrella around for a while longer. Scattered showers this evening and overnight tonight, about 52 degrees overnight. Tomorrow could get rained on again and again, maybe some thunderstorms, only in the mid-60s tomorrow. The grim weather should last until the weekend. Clouds and sporadic showers Saturday a little milder, close to 70. Sunday should reach well into the 70s with lots of sunshine. It's 6.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, a city in which praise does not frequently float across partisan lines. So it was notable when House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a Republican, had this to say about a top Biden administration official amid some of the most contentious debt ceiling negotiations in memory. Highly respect them, their knowledge. They've been Shalanda's worked on Apropos. Everybody in this place knows her, um, respects her greatly. Apropos meaning appropriations. And the Shalanda he's talking about, Shalanda Young, President Biden's budget director. Young brings more than a decade of experience on the House Appropriations Committee to her job, a job in which she served as a top White House negotiator to help pull the U.S. back from the brink of a historic default. Shalanda Young, it is so nice to see you in our studio. Welcome. Thanks, Mary Louise. Thanks for having me. I want to ask... At what point, at what moment in the debt ceiling talks, like how stuck and hopeless seeming were they when President Biden said, Shalanda, take the ball, please run? Look, we were stuck. um, And it was clear the speaker uh, wanted a different model to move the ball along. uh, And the president uh, offered up, I think that's an appropriate way to put it, (laughs) uh, his longtime counselor, Steve Reschetti. Uh And you know when Steve speaks... uh, Almost no one knows uh, President Biden better than Steve Reschetti, uh, and off, also offered me up as a long-time House staffer uh, who knows a lot of the players uh, we were going to have to deal with and knows the issues. So you all were tag-teaming. And we how did. did you divvy that up? Were you like a good cop, bad cop Depended duo? on the day. Depended on the hour. Um, what needed to be discussed. Clearly, some of the, the nitty-gritty of budget numbers, uh, I t- took the lead. Uh, Steve delivered uh, hard truths in the room, uh, especially uh, knowing where the president wanted to go. Uh, so it was a good combination, along with uh, two of our other colleagues, uh, Louisa Terrell, who's also known the president a very long time, and Michael Linden, who works with me, uh, with the speaker's team. Yeah. And what was the breakthrough moment? I mean, describe that after weeks of talks that were right up against the edge of this cliff. I've done a lot of these. Um, and... I never see like a big moment. You just want to see progress every day. Even when you've taken a couple steps back, can you get it back on track? How fast can you get it back on track? You have a time, a timeline. This one, when we uh, ran out of the ability to pay our, our debts. Because Janet Yellen was warning it's coming and it's coming really fast. And she warned uh, every day. So we all knew and we, we knew the, the time frame. So I don't know if there was one breakthrough moment, but as long as we kept meeting, as long as we kept talking, as long as one line of communication was open. Um, so I never had that it's not going to happen moment because failure wasn't an option. Yeah. 
So you got to a deal, and I want to step back and ask how you see the stakes. I mean, there were numbers in play. You were trying to get the math to line up and everybody on the same page in terms of the math. But bigger picture, do these negotiations say? What do they say about the direction our country is or should be headed in? You know, it always strikes me. I've been in this town 22 years. Um you know, debt ceiling brinksmanship is a fairly newer construct uh, that I wish we did not have. Uh, it was something Congress did without much fanfare because it was just a part of their duty. Um, and you saw that change um, in 2011. And we are at the place we are. We can complain about it or we, we do what we just did, which is work out a deal uh, that the majority of members on the Democratic and Republican side agreed to. Uh, and I think the vote was validating to this model that there could be compromise. We're in divided government. That's what the American people expect. All right. When you say we are at the place we are, it makes me wonder, how do we avoid doing this all over again? Nobody wants to do this every two years. But is there a way you get off that track? I'm sure you don't. You're looking at me like, <laughs> please, can we not do this again every two years? I have a 19-month-old. I can't do math as quickly, even though I'm the budget director. But um, I can promise you, a kindergartner, it still wouldn't be uh, fun to, to do that again. Look, the, the goal was not just to avoid default, which would have been the first ever in this country, risking 8 million jobs of Americans, many of them working class, middle class. You have to keep that in mind. Um, but it was also do this for an extended amount of time, not to put the country through this uh, for a long time. And we were able to accomplish that getting a deal till uh, 2025. Yeah. But again, my question, how do we not do this every two years? Look, it, it's congressional responsibility to do this. And we, um, we're we going to keep reminding them of this. Look, we were going to have to talk about budgets at some point. Republicans wanted to bring that conversation forward and have that. And I think we ended up in a, in a place you would expect in divided government, whether we have that conversation now or in three months. Yeah. We've been talking about numbers and math, and I will inject one, which is the national debt stands at $31 trillion and growing. Is there no point at which the government just needs to say no more? Put the brakes on spending? Let's remember something. Like, I, I reject this idea that when you talk about budgets, that you don't talk about revenue. What does the government bring in? Who are you bringing it in from? Are billionaires in this country paying what nurses and firefighters are paying as a percentage of their pay? Do we pay income when people go to work and kill themselves? Uh, are we taxing that the same as people who have wealth uh, in stocks? We are not. Uh, and the president has made very clear that while we had a, a limited conversation to talk about real deficit reduction, to really get the debt under control, we have to have a real conversation about revenues and the tax unfairness in this country. Yeah. But in the minute or so we have left, the revenues are clearly not keeping up. I mean, again, it's a $31 trillion deficit, not surplus. Yeah, this is why in the president's budget, we put forth several uh, tax proposals. We kept bringing these up in conversations uh, with Republicans. And look, we had to avoid default, but we've not given up. We're coming back. Uh, we think corporations, the top 1%, are not paying the same percentage. Like there's some uh, some studies saying that billionaires, hundreds of millionaires pay 8% of their income uh, in taxes no. compared to nurses who pay 20%. That's not fair. And it's not bringing up in enough revenues uh, to keep up with what we need to do in this country. 
Shalanda Young is the director of the Office of Management and Budget. We appreciate you stopping by. I wish you some some sleep and some quality time Thank with that so toddler much. of yours. 19 you. months, no sleep. <laughs> we turn now to the octopus, which is known for its smarts. New research shows that these creatures can remake their brains in response to changes in their environments. NPR science reporter Ari Daniel brings us our weekly dose of wonder. The brain inside your head is fragile. It's encased in a skull, bathed in oxygen, and tuned to work at a relatively stable body temperature. We spend a ton of energy maintaining a constant temperature, and a lot of that is so that our nervous system can operate more efficiently. Too hot or too cold, and our brains would sputter and start to fail, says Josh Rosenthal, a neurobiologist at the Marine Biological Laboratory. Think hypothermia, or what happens when you spike a fever. You start becoming delirious. You're not thinking straight. And that's just several degrees off the norm. Now, consider the octopus. They're curious and clever. They can solve mazes and puzzles, use tools, and are masters of camouflage. They have incredibly complex, sophisticated behaviors, enormous brains. And those brains require just as much care as ours. But they're in squishy bodies, swimming in water that can swing by some 20 degrees. It's very hard to maintain a constant temperature in the water, and that presents challenges. So what's an octopus to do? They've got this trick up their sleeves that we don't know of any other animal that has in quite the same way. That trick is hidden inside their cells, says biologist Matthew Burke at St. Francis University. And it has to do with RNA, which is a very special molecule. It takes the genetic information in DNA and helps translate it into the proteins that make up our bodies. It doesn't tend to change all that much. RNA is just the messenger, but... If you can edit RNA, then that gives you flexibility. In the brains of most animals, only a few percent of the RNAs get edited. But inside the brains of octopuses and their relatives, it's more than 60 percent. That's a lot. And the researchers wondered if something in the animal's environment might be driving all this tweaking, specifically temperature. So Burke decided to test this out with some help from a kind of octopus. The California two-spot octopus They look very much like your typical octopus, although it does have two iridescent blue spots to try and scare a predator away. Their coastal habitat in Southern California and Northern Mexico seesaws between warm summers and cool winters. In the lab, Burke placed half his octopuses in cooler water and half in warmer water. After a few weeks, he collected RNA from their brains. We found that there were over 20,000 different locations on various different proteins that were edited. So the octopuses were re-sculpting their brains, presumably to keep them functioning properly in shifting temperatures. And they're capable of making these edits in less than a day. The findings are published in the journal Cell. Now, we still don't know how these changes might impact an octopus in its daily life, says Robin Crook, a neurobiologist at San Francisco State University who wasn't involved in the research. What would be nice to see in future is what types of behaviours are affected by these different types of changes. Their reaction speeds, their ability to camouflage. And despite octopuses living such different lives than you and I, Matthew Burke says their unique brains may prove useful to us one day. We're trying to figure out how to capture this ability to use it towards therapeutics. Like pain reduction or repairing harmful mutations that cause disease. Octopuses, he says, have a lot to teach us. 
they are fascinating and interesting, not just on the outside, where we can all see. But also on the inside. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about five minutes on All Things Considered, the impact of the late televangelist Pat Robertson. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. Wall Street was on the rise today. The Dow rose a half percent. S&P hit a new high for the year as it picked up about six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq grew about a full percent. Resident physicians at the state's largest hospital system have voted to unionize. Massachusetts General Brigham officials say the union uh, and the union say 75 percent of doctors in training voted in favor of unionizing. They're seeking higher pay and other benefits. Hospital officials oppose the effort. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bowery Boston, presenting Steve Lacey, James Blake, Toro Imwa, and more at the stage at Suffolk Downs, Friday, June 16th. More at ResetConcertSeries.com. We want to give a big thank you to everybody who helped us out during our June fundraiser. It just ended a couple of hours ago. More than 700 people became monthly contributors this week, and we are so grateful. We are back to uninterrupted programming, but if you didn't get a chance to give and you'd still like to, just go to WBUR.org. Thank you. WBUR supporters include MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. How did a chatbot designed to help people with eating disorders end up offering advice on weight loss and dieting? Well, that is the question now that the National Eating Disorders Association has taken down this controversial chatbot just days after NPR reported on it. Michigan Radio's Kate Wells has been covering this and joins us now. Hey, Kate. Hey. Okay, so why was the National Eating Disorders Association trying to use a chatbot in the first place here? Yeah, the context is really important. The association is known as NIDA, and obviously it works to support patients with eating disorders. And for more than 20 years now, they have had this helpline that's been really popular. It's staffed by humans. Mm -hmm. But when COVID hit, the calls and messages to the helpline went way up. They got like Mm -hmm. 70,000 contacts just last year alone. They said the volume of these calls, the severity of these calls wasn't sustainable. And last month, they shut the helpline down. And that was very controversial in itself. But this chatbot, which is called Tessa, was one of the resources Nita was going to offer and invest in and really promote even after this helpline was gone. Okay, so what exactly went wrong with Tessa? Yeah, there's this a consultant in the eating disorder field. Her name is Sharon Maxwell. And she hears about this a couple weeks ago. She decides she wants to go try Tessa out. She asks the chatbot, hey, Tessa, how do you support people with eating disorders? 
And Tessa gives her a response that's like, oh, coping mechanisms, healthy eating habits. And Maxwell mm-hmm. starts asking it more about these healthy eating habits. And soon Tessa is telling her things that sound a lot like what she heard when she was put on Weight Watchers at age 10. Wow. The recommendations that Tessa gave me was that I could lose one to two pounds per week, that I should eat no more than 2,000 calories in a day, that I should have a calorie deficit of 500 to 1,000 calories per day, all of which might sound benign to the general listener. However, to an individual with an eating disorder, the focus of weight loss really fuels the eating disorder. Exactly. Okay, so Kate, this obviously was not what they intended for the chatbot to yeah. do. So so what was the response from Nita? Well, so Maxwell posts about this on Instagram, and she provides screenshots of the conversations with Tessa to Nita. And she says within hours of that, the chatbot was taken down. Nita told us that it's grateful to Maxwell and others for bringing this to their attention. And they're blaming the company that was operating the chatbot. Huh. And what did the company do to the chatbot specifically? So what you need to know about Tessa is that it was originally created by eating disorder experts. It was not like ChatGPT, which we hear a lot about. It couldn't just create new content on its own. Mm-hmm. One of those creators is Ellen Fitzsimmons-Craft. She's a professor at Washington University's Medical School in St. Louis. And she says they intentionally kept Tessa pretty narrow because they knew that this was going to be a high-risk situation. By design, it it couldn't go off the rails. We were very cognizant of the fact that AI isn't ready for this population. And so all of the responses were pre-programmed. But then at some point in the last year, the company that's operating Tessa, it's called CAS, added generative artificial intelligence, meaning it gave Tessa the ability to learn from new data and generate new responses. And the CEO of CAS told me that this is part of a systems upgrade, and he says that this change was part of its contract with NIDA. We should note that both the company and NIDA have apologized. Okay. And we are seeing, you know, more and more of these chatbots in the mental health area. Like, there are apps you can download, companies that are promoting AI therapy. Is the takeaway here that this is just a bad idea? Well, you can see why AI is so tempting, right? I mean, it's convenient, it's cheaper than hiring more and more humans, but what we are seeing repeatedly is that chatbots make mistakes. And in high-risk situations, that can be harmful. That is Kate Wells with Michigan Radio. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. The controversial televangelist Pat Robertson has died at the age of 93. Robertson was an architect of the religious right, a pioneer in Christian broadcasting, and briefly a politician. NPR's Sarah McCammon looks back at Robertson's life. For generations of conservative Christians, Pat Robertson was a familiar face on TV, shaping their understanding of both domestic politics and international affairs. From CBN, it's the 700 Club. Robertson, who was also an ordained pastor, founded the Christian Broadcasting Network in Virginia in the early 1960s, holding telethons to pay the network's bills. The most well-known program was the hugely popular and long-running news and talk show, The 700 Club. In this 1978 episode, Robertson and a co-host took viewers on a trip through Asia. Join Pat Robertson and Ben Kinchlow with highlights of the site. CBN's programs would eventually spread around the world. That success spurred Robertson to found a Christian college in the late 1970s, now known as Regent University in Virginia Beach. But his largest influence was on U.S. politics. He was the son of a 
prominent Virginia U.S. Senator. And Robertson spent his career promoting right-wing causes and politicians from Presidents Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. In 1988, he pursued his own presidential ambitions. Welcome to Dartmouth. They're all here, and one of them may be the next president of the United States. Here's Robertson ran for the Republican presidential nomination as both a social and fiscal conservative. But the Democrats just want to spend us into oblivion, and we've got to balance the budget. The campaign was unsuccessful, but it helped elevate Robertson's profile among politically engaged white evangelicals. He launched the Christian Coalition to mobilize those voters and hired Ralph Reed in 1989 to be the first executive director. Reed says Robertson created an organization that succeeded in recruiting and training a generation of conservative Christian political leaders whose influence is widespread today. Christian coalition really transformed the Republican Party and with it American politics, uh, helped to turn the Republican Party irreversibly into a socially conservative pro-life party that was populated increasingly by evangelical Christians. As a leader of the religious right, Robertson also developed a reputation for making racist and homophobic remarks. And a warning, the clips you're about to hear contain offensive language. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, your liberties are in danger because read the Bible about Sodom and Gomorrah. You might get AIDS in Kenya. The people have AIDS. you got to be careful. But I want to say it again and again and again. Islam is not a religion. It is a political system meant on, uh, bent on world domination. There, it is vindictive now. We're not talking about having rights from the poor, oppressed gays. We're talking about taking away the freedoms of everybody who disagrees with them. In 1990, Robertson founded the American Center for Law and Justice, a conservative legal advocacy group that became instrumental in right-wing causes, including efforts to restrict LGBTQ rights and abortion. The Reverend Rob Shank, an evangelical minister and former conservative activist, worked closely with Robertson around that time. He says Robertson was a mentor, even though Shank has since become a critic of the religious right. He'll become one of the historic figures in American evangelical history. Uh, but the larger impact on the culture, on our country, certainly politically, has not been a helpful one, and I'm afraid has been damaging. Despite that, Schenck says he believes Robertson also deserves credit for his humanitarian work. In the late 70s, he founded Operation Blessing, which conducts disaster relief efforts around the world, such as helping earthquake victims in Turkey and Ukrainian refugees. In 2021, some 60 years after CBN's first broadcast, Robertson stepped down from hosting the 700 Club, handing the reins to his son, Gordon. CBN says Pat Robertson died this morning, surrounded by his family at home in Virginia Beach. Sarah McCammon, NBR News, Norfolk. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu MBA.